You're about to listen to another Bonversation. Bonversations feature the most interesting and insightful people in the act realm and beyond. Every episode is made possible by people like you who value and support independent media. Now here's your host, JLB. Shit, they're lying to us! All right, so our guest today studied economics and he now works in catastrophe management in the insurance industry. He's a husband and a father. He coaches the Little League baseball team. He's learning the cello on the side, and he likes to read obscure Russian literature. But that's not why I wanted to speak to him. I saw an article that this fellow wrote a week or two ago on the Brownstone Institute, which we'll talk about later on. And I got the impression from reading his words that he is a relatively normal guy, intelligent, articulate, educated. But he knew back in 2020 that something wasn't right. And I get the sense that to this day, he still looks around and wonders, how did that happen? In fact, that's what he writes about. So we're going to talk about the articles that he's published on his Substack and at Brownstone. But before we get to any of that, let me introduce our guest, Charles Kublich. And I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. It's good to have you on the conversations. Yeah, thanks. Glad to, glad to be here. And am I pronouncing that properly? Because it is spelled K-R-B-L-I-C-H. So where is that name from and what's the best way to pronounce it? Yeah, well, if you're in Bulgaria now, it's it's close. It's from uh, Poland, um, and it's Kerblik. Uh, but yeah, it's the the Kerblich is uh, a common pronunciation for it, so it doesn't doesn't bother me at all. Well, let's jump right into the fun because time is of the essence. So I saw an article of yours at this Brownstone Institute right off the bat. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so the the Brownstone Institute was uh, founded by a guy, Jeffrey Tucker. And uh, if your listeners are aware of the Great Barrington Declaration, he helped set up the Great Barrington Declaration. And I I don't have any affiliation with the Brownstone Institute other than I write articles that they sometimes publish. But um, they are just an institute, a think tank that, that publishes articles about lockdown, the COVID mania, and public health and government and libertarianism. And that's. about all I know about the Brownstone Institute. So you started writing your articles on Substack. What led you to one day decide, you know what, I'm going to write about my thoughts and my sentiments regarding what's happening in the world and what happened a few years ago? What was it that caused you to one day decide, you know what, I'm going to start a Substack? Yeah, so uh, the, ver- the very first article that I published on the Substack was uh, the COVID controls the cello and me. And I was also the very first article that the Brownstone Institute published. And that article was just my experience with learning the cello during all of the COVID mania, uh, which was absolutely crazy. And, you know, it was it was a, it was a take on, you know, my interest with literature. Uh, you know, I found myself outside of the scope of normal thought, I suppose. And I really did feel like Don Quixote. Right. I I wanted to continue to learn the cello and I wanted to continue to learn the cello in person. I wanted to play music with other people and uh, you you couldn't do that suddenly. So uh, the, the article itself was my story of an old man that I play in uh, cello ensemble with. He was also normal. And, and you know, the the thing I always told him, because he was a, uh, you know, he went to Woodstock. He was a, uh, he was a hippie, and he's about as far to the opposite on the political spectrum as you could be from where I, uh, where I am. And uh, you know, I, I always told him, I said, you know, you uh, you kept your principles, right? Like that old hippie went to Woodstock. The government is bad. Like he kept all of those principles and 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 was still living it, whereas everyone else had had shifted and changed. And uh, so, you know, he and I, we, we played the cello and we had to rebuild. We, we had to rebuild everything that we had. We if we wanted to play publicly, we went to the park and we played. We, we became buskers. That's not something I ever thought I'd end up doing. But we did because that was the only alternative. Right. And that went on for something like three years. And, and uh, so that I, I wrote that article, maybe seven different times. And then finally, I, I just I, I wanted somebody to hear it. And so I sent it off to the Brownstone Institute. And I said, Hey, this is, uh, you know, would you consider publishing this? And and they did. And, and uh, I guess they have liked my writing because they've published several more of them. Well, I have to say you are a terrific writer, especially for somebody who studied economics, and now works in insurance. I wouldn't have expected this kind of articulation, if you don't mind me saying this from some of your profession, but you write very well. 
It's not verbose. It's not fluffy. These articles are easy to read. They're relatively short, but you make some good points in each of them. So let's start with that one. COVID controls the cello and me. You published this back in August of last year. And in this story, you just mentioned how you basically became friends with somebody on the opposite end of the political spectrum to yourself. And how did this happen? Because you and your teacher, now what I'm saying, this is not private, this is what you wrote about in your article. Your teacher, your first cello teacher, the COVID madness actually led to a rift and kind of ruined that relationship for a period. Yeah, for for almost three years. It was, um, you know, some some things, some nasty things were said and and uh and and that was that right and it was uh you know in, in retrospect like as you look back and and you and you look and, and and you say well what did what did somebody gain from any of this right it's it's difficult to to even see but you know that said is we we were able to come back together after after the time off and uh we the you know the the old man that I played the cello with in the ensemble that we continued playing through the lockdown period and and all of that we uh we ended up helping her rebuild the cello ensemble and um there's five people playing it now whereas before there was only three so just just try and bring value to everyone's life right that's that's what the the whole point of it all is well, one of the things I wanted to speak with you about in this interview is how do you move on from some of the things that were said and done by otherwise intelligent people during the madness of 2020? And I have noticed in some of your articles, this idea has come up once or twice of you saw what happens, you know what was said and done, and the world has gone back to normal. And how do you navigate this world knowing what we now know about the people and how they will treat us when the TV tells them that we are the devil. So we'll come back to that. Let's get back to this cello story. So you wrote that one day you were watching a YouTube video of Misha Maisky playing some of Bach's first cello suite. So you decided to rent a cello. You didn't even have a teacher at the time. You just wanted to learn the cello. Is this a true story, Charles? You you just decided to pick up learning the cello because you saw someone playing it on YouTube one day. Oh yeah, it, it was totally a whim. I, I, I saw the I saw the YouTube, and uh, it's it's even kind of a stuffy YouTube. I mean, the guy's in a tuxedo; it, it, he doesn't look comfortable at all. But he plays the song. He plays the song beautifully. And I, I think like three days later, I had a cello in in my office, and my wife comes home. She didn't even know I was doing it. She says, "What the heck are you doing with a cello?" <laughs> and uh, couldn't couldn't play it in tune. I had no idea what the heck I was going to do. But the day that I picked up the cello. Uh, was also the day that I met the woman who became my teacher. She uh, came into the the luthier uh, with her two kids, and she was getting her cello repaired. And uh, the guy who ran the luthier shop gave me or had us talk to each other, and and ended up doing a lesson. And man, just everything just clicked for the first time. I mean, I tried learning the guitar, I tried learning the violin, the piano, and uh, just kind of failed at all of them but the the cello it uh, all just clicked together right then and and uh, i can actually kind of play it you wrote in that article when the student is ready the teacher appears and that is exactly what's happened in your case you've decided almost randomly to learn the cello you've gone to pick up a cello that you were renting the day that you went to pick it up a lady who knows how to teach cello happened to be there and next thing you know she becomes a teacher so that's a terrific story but that was all pre-2020 once the madness began then lessons went virtual and you decided, I don't want to learn cello online. And that's how you ended up playing with the, the older gentleman from the group, basically, is what happened. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's interesting, too, because I know on, on your on your main site, you have quotes from Carl Jung and, and Nietzsche. And uh, Carl Jung is fantastic on this subject. Right. He, the, the word that he uses to refer to those coincidences is synchronicity. The synchronicities, if you pay attention to them, are everywhere, and they're, and it's just super fascinating, right? Like if you're looking at what coincidences are meaningful in your own life, and then you go down that path, like your life just tends to get better, right? And the synchronicities happen more often. And uh, and and another super interesting one. It's not it's not quite in the same vein, but I had never read Nietzsche before before the the lockdowns. Uh, I had always put it off. I I looked at it. I said, well, I don't want to read anything about nihilism. I'm not a nihilist and I don't want any. And uh, but after the lockdowns, I was like, man, this, you know, I should probably read this and, and see what this is all about, because that's 
It just occurred to me that that was. And uh, so I ordered Thus Spake or Thus Spoke Zarathustra and I read it and I was like, Jesus, man, that, that like he was on point. You know, Nietzsche knew what he was talking about and everything that was in that book was things I had thought for years. It was uh, it was just super, super interesting that, you know, all of those things kind of came together and, you know, all at the same time. So one of the benefits of the lockdowns and the madness was that it got you into reading more literature than you had previously read. Uh, I've always I've always read um, I've always read a significant amount. The the lockdowns pushed me into a different area of literature that I had never never really considered reading before uh, with with Nietzsche and more historical. Uh, and that was like the article that you mentioned that, that you came across on Reddit about the so long ago, you know, books like that. I had never considered reading. I just wasn't wasn't interested in it really whatsoever. Uh, as far as, you know, what drove the psyche of the German populace up into, uh, you know, what became Nazism and uh, the same thing for Soviet Russia, you know, the transition between the czarist Russia and into Bolshevism and, and, and then uh, Soviet Soviet Russia and then and then the transition back out of it. And the same thing, too, with the French Revolution. Uh, I saw a lot of parallels with lockdownism. I saw a lot of parallels between what occurred in the French Revolution, what occurred in Germany, and and what occurred in, in pre-revolutionary Russia as well. And uh, so I wanted to read about it. I wanted to familiarize myself with that so that I could understand or at least have some type of grasp on what I thought was occurring, because it was so different than than anything that I had ever expected could have happened. Well, that was one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading your articles was that you were able to say, well, here's what I used to think. Here's what I noticed or here's what I read and thought about. And here's my current opinion. Because I like this idea that people can, that I can, as I grow and learn and read and study, that I can improve my thinking. I like the idea that other people can as well, that we can change our opinions based on our experience. So let me read to you a passage from so long ago that it never really happened. And this was, like I said, somebody linked this on Reddit. That's how I first found your work. So here's what you wrote. My perspectives have vastly changed. I realize now that totalitarianism is primarily a society-wide delusion that enables despots to flourish with power. This is the opposite of my beliefs before. I used to think that it was the despots who used their power to create the totalitarian society. So those are your words. And you're talking, I believe, in reference to or in the context of the madness of 2020. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yep. So let's rewind a little bit. And I try not to, with a lot of my content these days, talk too much about the madness. But every now and then it's worth revisiting. And you seem like a good person to revisit this with. Can you talk us through in early 2020, say January, February, when there's these news stories about this disease that is supposedly causing problems in China? Can you rewind us a few years back to what was going through your mind before all the sports shut down? So before March came along, before they shut down playing the music with your friends and what have you, before all of that, can you take us back? When did you realize that this was going to be more than just another news story? That this could actually get serious. That's a that's a good question, and I suppose I was on the back end of this the entire time. I was behind where everybody else was, right? So when when the news stories first started coming out, I suppose I just I didn't really care that much, right? Uh, okay, there's a respiratory virus. And then the world shut down. The lockdowns happened. We were ordered to stay inside our houses for two weeks and everybody did. Right. And I remember going out in my neighborhood and walking around. I was the only one outside for at least that first week. I, more people came out, I think, in the second week, if I remember correctly. But you know, there was there was one moment. It was uh, my oldest son. He came home and he started coughing. And there was a moment of fear that I experienced that I thought, oh, what if he has it? And if he does have it, what are we going to do about it? Right. Like we as being a family. And uh, it immediately occurred to me just because I'm, uh, uh, you know, aware and I, I am able to process uh, emotions, I, I suppose, functionally, that that, that was an emotional response to something. And I had to shut that down immediately and then think rationally. And then that was, that was the, that was the end of it. 
right? That was the only, it was probably about uh, five minutes of what are we going to do until uh, it, it turned into, well, it, if he does have it, there's nothing we can do about it. And we're just going to treat him like we would if he had the flu. And uh, it turns out that that was the correct perspective all along. Now, to the second part of your question is, as far as when did I realize it was uh, a big problem? And I remember taking bets with after they shut down New York because the the company that I work for is uh, has offices in New York. And after they shut down New York, I remember taking bets saying, well, how long do we think that this is going to last? Right. That the, that the lockdowns would end up lasting. And I picked I picked eight weeks. I thought that was that was more than reasonable. You had the two week period that you shut down and within that two weeks, you could see whether or not it was actually going to be a thing. And then by the end of the eighth week, you had you, you would have had to have realized that, you know, you actually have to come back out and go about your life. And I was completely wrong about that, uh, completely wrong about that. And so uh, that, that's what I mean, that uh, I was on the back end of everything. I expected people to go back to want I expected them to want to go back to normalcy far, far quicker than, than they did. And so and, and that was that was the biggest shock was that people did not want to. They actually enjoyed doing the things that they were doing and, 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 and derived purpose from it. And so that's what I mean by when I was on the back end of it. It took me it took me a while to come to grips with. I just was not thinking in the same in in the same manner as, as everybody else was so are you familiar with the concept of the non-player character have you heard this idea before like oh they're just npcs this kind of thing yeah and um i have an interesting take on that i'm sure one of the readers commented on one of the articles it it, it um i forget which one uh, and, and, you know, because the whole uh, perspective of, of the Substack is uh, different takes on literature. I refer to literature quite a bit. And his comment, the reader's comment was fascinating. It was a letter from Robert Louis Stevenson, who uh, wrote Treasure Island. I think in his letter, he referred to what we call NPCs, the non-player characters, as uh, damp gingerbread puppets. But that what he was referring to was the concept of the NPC. And uh, it was fascinating to me. And I was I'm 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 doing research on it. I want to write an article about it because this this concept of the NPC, it's been, you know, if, if Robert Louis Stevenson was was writing letters about it, it it's, it's been around for a very, very long time. And uh, St. Exbury wrote about it. I don't know if you ever uh, if you ever read the novel Wind, Sand and Stars. It's fantastic. Uh, you should read about it. He he writes about it as well, too. He's on a bus. And he's he's a pilot and he's 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 just on a bus going someplace and he's referring to all of the people getting on and off of the bus with, you know, their dead eyes and and uh, just kind of general depression uh, of having to go about their life. So it's it's the concept's been around for a really long time and it's all over the place in, in literature when, when you end up picking up on it. Well, the reason I ask you about the NPCs is because I heard about the idea back in 2017 or 18, and I wrote an article or two about it. And I looked at, because supposedly there was a scientific study, and this is how the meme got big in like 17, 18, because there was supposedly some study that some experts had done to measure how often during a day people thinking. And so I thought, I'll go and read this. I'll find the study and I'll read it and then I'll write an article about it. So I was using the NPC framework as in, maybe some people aren't thinking as consciously as we think they are. But for me, it was just a framework. It wasn't, I didn't think people are literally NPCs. But even just exploring the NPC idea, it managed to offend some people. Oh, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't call them NPCs. So even when I wasn't saying that people are literally non-player characters, people found that offensive. Then in 2020, you saw what happened. I saw what happened. All the people listening, they saw what happened. Like I found myself thinking, wow, the NPC thing. I don't think I was going far enough. As in, when I was just exploring the idea of the NPC as a framework for trying to describe the way that some people behave, I don't think I was going far enough. Because what I saw in March, April, May of 2020, I started to question, Charles, am I actually surrounded by non-player characters? That's how crazy it got. Yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely crazy. That's, there's no doubt about that. Well, you wrote in so long ago that it never really happened. I'm going to read another section from that article. 
You're right. It is a simple fact that I had never considered. A deluded person is perfectly capable of applying their delusion rationally. One-way grocery aisles, mask toddlers, and vaccine segregation are all rational applications of what most now see as the mistaken COVID ideology. So what you're writing about in that section is how, this is what I think you're writing about anyway, is, is how people can, even intelligent people, can rationalize, they can post facto rationalize behaviors that in ordinary times, people would say, well, that's completely ridiculous. But in the moment when the mass panic is going on and the hive mind takes over, the people, they can use their intelligence to rationalize, to justify stuff that doesn't make any sense outside of the hive mind. When I describe it that way, is that kind of what you were getting at there? Yeah. The, um, so the, the, the book that, uh, that the article is referring to, or it, it links to, was a book titled Life Unworthy of Life. And it, the, the whole concept of the book, and I had never considered this be- beforehand, right? And, and you go through school, you read about the, the uh, Nazi Germany and the Holocaust and the treatment of the Jewish people. And there's just this idea that, that your average German citizen, your normal German citizen, just didn't play a part in any of it, right? Which, which is true, right? They, they weren't actively necessarily doing anything. But the concept of the book was that that concept had, had influenced all of the mindsets of your average German citizen, right? And so even if the, the German citizen wasn't doing anything, they were still supportive of this idea that was over, overwhelmingly present. Therefore, the things that they were doing made sense, like if you believe that the Jewish people are not worthy of living, then sending them to the camps and the ghettos and executing them becomes a rational application of that idea. Uh, th- that that book was was super interesting, and, and you can see that right. If one believes that there's a miasma all around us in the air. And if I breathe it in, I'm going to become sick. And if I become sick, I might end up dying myself or I might infect people that I love. Then wearing a mask and forcing everyone else to wear a mask, that's a completely rational application of this idea. But the problem is you have to consider, is the idea itself true, right? Am I acting in a way that is representative of reality or am I holding a belief that's not correct, but then still responding to, the, to that belief? Right. And so that's the that's the idea behind that paragraph. Right. Is that if I if I do believe all of the things that the, the TV told me about covid, then then all of those things are completely rational. And uh, I'm, I'm the only thing I'm doing is I'm applying my belief, right, at, at that point in time. And uh, if you think of it that way, uh, it, it, become, it becomes much easier to see what the motivations are, I think, of, of the people behind the, action, behind the actions that they're taking. Well, that leads on to the next stanza. So this is my favorite part of the article. And again, this is the first of your pieces that I read. I didn't even, I'd never heard of you before. And then someone linked to this on Reddit. Here's my favorite part. Rationalization allows participants to maintain the delusion even in the face of massive contradictory evidence. The personal investment is often enhanced by performance of bizarre new rituals. The rituals work to reinforce the investment and lead to the expression of rage when challenged, rage even towards those closest to them. So you're talking about bizarre new rituals, such as wear a mask, bang pots and pans to celebrate the hospital workers or whatever. This is what we were witnessing, wasn't it, Charles? Bizarre new rituals that people performed in. They took part in this giant live action role play. And in doing so, they seem to become even more emotionally invested in the uh, the LARP, as it were. Yeah. And, and I mean, just very simply, just by virtue of doing those things, you have to, to believe what you're doing was, was worth something. It's incredibly difficult to admit that you've been fooled. And then not only that you've been fooled, but that you also 
responded and, and behaved in, in some kind of interesting ways. So, it, you know, by, by doing all of those things, you're, you're just reinforcing the, the belief. And, and because of that, you're also reinforcing that, well, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm actively doing this, uh, it has to be for a reason. And of course, that reason was to, to eliminate COVID. Can you imagine in any other situation, somebody justifying walking out to their patio or to their front yard and banging pots and pans at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m.? And other people in the neighborhood doing the same thing. If we hadn't witnessed that during the madness, as I call it, in any other situation, suppose I, I called you and I said, hey, listen, man, get this. Here in Bulgaria, people are walking out to their front yards and banging pots and pans at 7 p.m. And you'd be like, well, why are they doing that? And if I said to you, well, it's, it's to show solidarity with people they've never met uh, working in hospitals and stuff. Like at some point, you're going to think this is all a big charade. But that is what was actually happening. Fortunately, not here in Bulgaria. But in parts of England, I'm reliably informed people were literally doing that just a few years ago, Charles. And the whole world yeah. seems to have gone back to normal. And I get it. And I respect people who are like, J-O-B, it's in the past, man. <laughs> we need to move on. I'm like, I get that, really, because the whole world has moved on. But I cannot forget what I saw. That's why I wanted to talk to you, because reading your articles, I get the sense that you've moved on with your life. And like I said, you're a father and you coach the little league baseball team, and you seem to be leading a happy, healthy, productive life. However, you have not memory hold what you saw in 2020, like getting kicked out of the ice cream store. You mentioned this in a couple of articles. Your family, on Mother's Day, just wanted to go and get some ice cream, and you were kicked out of the ice cream store. Yeah. You know, the, ironically, the place was named Wicked Ice Cream. So <laughs> it's, uh, and, and it's, yeah, we, you know, and, and, and it's just crazy stuff because if we sat down and ate the ice cream without the masks, we would have been totally fine. We just had to order it with the masks, apparently. And uh, yeah, that was, that was on Mother's Day. And, and bear in mind, we were in Florida, which was the, the, uh, you know, the, the state in the United States that led the charge, right. As far as, um, ending the, the lockdowns and, and the craziness. Right. And we were in Florida and it was after the, uh, governor DeSantis had removed all of the statewide restrictions and we still ended up getting kicked out of that ice cream shop. Yep. And then you also have written about how you took your children out of public schools during the madness. And you did some homeschooling. Yeah, that was that was totally unexpected. Uh, it was absolutely the right thing to do. But I never expected to be a homeschool parent whatsoever. And uh, the the lockdowns, they when they closed the schools, they forced that on you. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of parents, they, they complained about what the curriculum was uh, that, that came home and became what was Zoom school, which and, and granted, the curriculum was was absolutely ridiculous. It was uh, hastily loaded into the the various different apps that you had to connect to, but that wasn't that wasn't the only the only problem. What we realized after they got home was a whole slew of different things. You know, the first of which, when when you asked, you know, I had uh, the lockdowns happened when my oldest was in second grade, uh, so it was the year that he would have learned phonics, right? Allegedly learned phonics, and. The by the third grade, we had sent them back in. They had to they had to wear the masks. And, and I to this day, this is my my biggest regret from the pandemic is I expected everyone to uh, want to go back to normal, especially for for the, the kids, like to let the kids lead normal lives. But they the school board extended the masking requirements for the entire year. And uh, we we ultimately ended up uh, pulling them out the year after that, uh, when the the school board had voted unanimously to return everybody to normal life, normal school, normal everything. Uh, they voted unanimously for that, and then the the week that they started the the next school year, uh, they held an emergency meeting. It was at nine o'clock in the morning. Every all the parents are dropping their kids off at school, so they can't show up. Uh, and then they voted to return the the mask requirement. And that was the we pulled them out that week. And after they got home, we realized that they couldn't do really simple things. You know, if, if uh, everyone thinks I'm a writer, right, you have to understand what a verb is, what a noun is. Right. And, and 
And uh, none of my kids could articulate that. And this is the point of school, right? The point of school is to learn those things. And so, so we pulled them out uh, while the school figured out whatever the heck it needed to figure out to go back to, to normal schooling and, and, and we homeschooled them. Are they back at public school now or are they homeschool kids from this point forward? They, so they go to a charter school now. They built a charter school. It's right across the street from our house that they can walk to. And the charter school, I suppose, is technically public school. The, the public school money, the, the property taxes fund the, the charter school. But it's kind of a hybrid between what a private school is and what a public school is. But no, they do not go to the, the county-run the county public schools. Because you said something interesting earlier that you didn't think you'd be a homeschool family or you didn't think you'd be a homeschool parent. Would I be right in guessing that before 2020, you wouldn't have seen yourself as being, and I don't know the right word for it, but like alternative to the point of, how do I describe this to you? Somebody like me, you could say to me five years ago, if the world went mad, would you go along with it? And I'd say, well, no, I already think I'm, I already live a pretty crazy life. You know what I'm trying to say? I'm a bit sort of fringe as it were. But I get the sense from you that it's not like you were some kind of political activist some kind of uh, right-wing extremist or anything like that. You're just a normal dude who saw that the restrictions that came into place from March onwards 2020 were insane. That's the impression I get, Charles. Is that a fair assessment? Do you think of – have I got the right impression of you is what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, it's, I think it's mostly fair. My – was never – I mean, I've never considered myself political whatsoever. I refuse to, to vote for anyone you know, but but my uh, my political transition happened in 2007 uh, with the Republican debate uh, uh, out of out of all things. I still can't believe it to this day. But, uh, you know, an old guy, Ron Paul. Right. He stood up on the stage and, and uh, started talking about blowback. Uh, is it related to terrorism? And, and uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani tore into him. And then the crowd cheered for Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, and the crowd cheered for Rudy Giuliani and and uh, and Ron Paul. You know, he didn't back down. He he uh, he started talking about blowback. You know, and and that if we kill, like if we just start going and killing people indiscriminately, you know, their children are going to be upset, and of course they're going to want right. And I mean, yeah, right. That's that's a hundred percent true. And uh, that was uh, that was my transition from. Being, I suppose, mainstream to libertarianism, which is, 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 I still suppose a little bit more mainstream than, than you would probably consider yourself, but is still outside the scope of what is normal, what, what, what would be considered the normal political spectrum, I suppose. Well, you said that I wouldn't believe it, but maybe you're not going to believe this. That exact same 2007 Republican primary with Ron Paul and Rudy Giuliani was what got me looking into Ron Paul and libertarianism in the first place. I was a first-year uni student at that time. And I remember Ron Paul was making this case that if we, as in America, if we go to the Middle East and get involved in their troubles, then we will just get more troubles back here, blowback, as you called it. And then he started explaining how the founding fathers would never have supported that. The founding fathers would never have supported us uh, doing these interventionary wars or whatever. So we started explaining it from like, this is what the Republican Party is meant to be. And then he didn't get much response. And then Rudy Giuliani said something like, I want to say that's a very offensive remark. As the man who was the, the governor or the mayor uh, at the time of the 9-11, I'm offended by your remarks or something like this is what Rudy said. And then the crowd started cheering for him. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? Because that was crazy to me. Like one guy made a very valid point. He got nothing. Rudy made a ridiculous point. Like, so what if you were the, the, uh, the mayor of New York? That doesn't mean that anything you say is legitimate. And all you're saying is that you're offended by what the other guy, like, why is people cheering for this? Congressman Paul, I believe you are the only man on the stage who opposes the war in Iraq, who would bring the troops home uh, as quickly as almost immediately, sir. Are you out of step with your party? Is your party out of step with the rest of the world? If either of those is the case, why are you seeking its nomination? Well, I think the uh, party has lost its way because the uh, conservative wing of the Republican Party always advocated a non-interventionist foreign policy. Senator Robert Taft didn't want to be in NATO. 
uh, George Bush won the election in the year 2000 campaigning on a uh, humble foreign policy, no uh, nation building, no policing of the world. Republicans were elected to end the Korean War. The Republicans were elected to end the Vietnam War. There's a strong tradition of being anti-war uh, in the Republican Party. It is the constitutional position. It is the advice of the founders to follow a non-interventionist foreign policy. Stay out of entangling alliances. Be friends with countries. Negotiate and talk with them and trade with them. Just think of the tremendous improvement uh, relationship with Vietnam. We lost 60,000 men. We came home in defeat. Now we go over there and invest in, in Vietnam. So there's a lot, of, a lot of merit to the advice of the founders and following the Constitution. And my argument is that we shouldn't go to war so carelessly. When we do, the wars don't end. Congressman, you don't think that changed with the 9-11 attack, sir? What changed? The non-interventionist policies. No, it, it, non-intervention was a major contributing factor. Have you ever read about the reasons they attacked us? They, they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. We've been in the Middle East. I think Reagan was right. We don't understand the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. So right now we're building an embassy in Iraq that's bigger than the Vatican. We're building 14 permanent bases. What would we say here if China was doing this in our country or in the Gulf of Mexico, we would be objecting. We need to look at what we do from the perspective of what would happen if somebody else did it to us. Are you suggesting we invited the 9-11 attack, sir? I'm, I'm suggesting that we listen to the people who attacked us and the reason they did it. And they are delighted that we're over there because Osama bin Laden has said, I am glad you're over on our sand because we can target you so much easier. They have already now, since that time, have killed 3,400 of our men, and I don't think it was necessary. Wendell, may I make a comment on that? That's really an extraordinary statement. That's an extraordinary statement as someone who lived through the attack of September 11, that we invited the attack because we were attacking Iraq. I don't think I've ever heard that before, and I've heard some pretty absurd explanations for September 11. And I would, I would ask the congressman to withdraw that comment and tell us that he didn't really mean that. And that's what got me looking to Ron Paul. And it sounds like on the other side of the world, you were having a similar experience with the exact same presidential uh, nomination debate. Yeah, that was that was the moment. And, you know, it was uh, it, it I think like immediately after that, the uh, the Sean Hannity, the one of the Ron Paul guys was trying to interview Sean or question Sean Hannity, like, Sean, why won't you talk to Ron Paul? He's everything you claim to be. He just like walked away. And that was like, that was it. That was I turned off the TV and that was the end of the TV, you know, and I uh, went back and I, and I started reading and I, um, I suppose I had given that up in college because 2007 I was in, uh, I was just out, I had just finished college, I think, and uh, had, had for the most part given up reading uh, anything. And, and right after that, uh, I think the first book I bought was uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Free to Choose, and, and uh, it was just, just down the, the, the libertarianism rabbit hole after that and, and ultimately back to more classic literature, uh, and in particular, the like you mentioned, the Russian literature. I've always loved the Russian literature. It's a fascinating take on the, on the human psyche. It's able to deal with the darkness and the like, the redemptive arc that is is just super powerful to everybody. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that redemptive arc because of all the pieces of yours that I've read, probably my favorite was the Banishing Ghosts piece which is a very short article. It's probably less than a thousand words. So you do get to the point with your writing. And probably that's one of the reasons why I like it because a lot of people these days when they communicate, they're very verbose and they take a long time to say not very much, but you seem to get to the point. And so in this very short article that you wrote, you set it up from the beginning of, you know, it was Halloween the other day. And so my family and I were celebrating Halloween. And then basically it goes through the story of how a few years ago, you know, your homeowners association was talking about wrapping the lollies individually and all of this. These are my words, not yours. Ridiculous stuff. But you were saying that now, and so this was last year, the end of last year, now things seem to be back to normal. So then you write that the thought, this is you writing here, the thought that we lived through three years of Halloween struck me. Costumed in masks and other PPE, the celebration of death 
transpired on our news channels. There were parties of dancing nurses and socially distanced everything. Many petitioned stay safe rather than pleading trick or treat. Most of us were tricked, but many received treats like free donuts with their candy. So you seem to be talking about how it was a giant live action role play. And as you said, a celebration of death. Do you remember how during the madness they would have the counters on the news? So if you were watching the news, it would have counters of the number of cases across either your region or the, or the world, the number of deaths. It was a counter, not just you, Charles, but even anyone listening right now. Do you remember how during the madness they had a number and that number was constantly going up and that was supposedly the number of cases or of deaths? Then they show these nurses in hospitals dancing. It's as you described, Charles. It's like a celebration of death, wasn't it? It was like one giant Halloween for two or three years straight, full of costumes, full of dancing rituals, and a big celebration of death. Yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't have anything to add to it. That's that's what it was, and and uh, you know, I I think I I am I am having a little bit of fun with that article. The article is about Halloween. I personally I can't stand Halloween. I, I hate getting dressed up for it and uh, trying trying to avoid it as much as I can. But um, the the Substack the the title of the Substack is variations on a theme, right? And and, and we brought up you you brought up music earlier. One of the things that composers do, and I wouldn't consider myself a composer at all, but I, I like the concept. Uh, the, and the concept is they they vary a theme. So you take a you'll take a theme like Pop Goes the Weasel, and you have this melody that's there, and then you'll create a variation on it. Right? It could be you play Pop Goes the Weasel in a minor key. Right? You just uh, rather than playing it in the major, it's in a major key, and, and rather than playing the major third, you play the minor third. Right? And that's the variation. And then maybe uh, you add a diminished chord to it, give it some tension, right, before you resolve it back into, you know, and, and that's, uh, that was kind of the, the idea of like here, you know, we're walking around the neighborhood, the kids have to, they, they, you know, they don't, they don't have to, but they are going trick or treating. If I had to look back and, you know, here we, here we have all of the things that happen and, and people are, you know, because Halloween's kind of a silly holiday, right? Everyone's dressing up, they're, they're, dancing they're going trick-or-treating it was just a variation on on the idea of halloween as is it opposed as it applied to the the pandemic right people did enjoy it didn't they there were people who whether they would admit it to themselves or to others or not enjoyed the pantomime of the whole thing they enjoyed the idea that by staying home which many of these people were doing anyway they were shut-ins they were homebodies they weren't exactly their phones weren't blowing up with invitations to parties even before the pandemic. But now their shut-in lifestyle is a virtue. It's celebrated. And I think a lot of people enjoyed the pantomime of, we're in a pandemic. We're saving lives by staying home. We're the good people. I think there were a lot of people out there, Charles, that actually enjoyed the madness of 2020. Whether they'll ever admit it or not, they actually enjoyed, for a whole bunch of reasons, the free money and the, the virtue signaling and what have you. There were a bunch of people out there who this was the most fun they've had in years. What say you? Oh, yeah. No, I did 100%. Um, I, I think it's balanced, though, by the probably a larger, and this is just a, a pure conjecture, but probably a larger number of people who donned the two masks. They, they put on the cloth mask, the N95, the face shield, and then they went to work or whatever, and they just thought, well, this is what I have to do to get through my day. And, and I think I think that's a significant number of of people as well too. But then yes, there are the people, uh, and I and I have a, an article about this as well too. Is the the guy who was the head of the school board, our local school board? He was a quote unquote epidemiologist, right? Now, what does that mean? It means he he did a master's program, right? He he had uh, one year of a master's degree in epidemiology or biostatistics. Now he never he never practiced it. He never was doing statistics, but he did that master's degree, and now he's on the school board. and And when he's being interviewed by all the local news, uh, they're all referring to him as the epidemiologist, right? And that guy, he loved it. He loved all of the attention, the interviews, and everything else. And uh, you know, he knew more than than the governor did for sure. And the governor's taken off the mask. He doesn't. We're in a pandemic, right? And there's quotes of him. And uh, but yeah. It's uh, it's just unfortunate. 
Well, this article, Banishing the Ghosts After the Pandemic, the way that you structured it was you've got Halloween and then I guess shortly after that in America is Thanksgiving, which is a huge holiday in your part of the world. And it seemed like what you were getting at was these interpersonal problems that came up as a result of the, the madness. Banishing the ghosts, I got the sense you were talking about, can you move on and forgive people? So at the end of this public part of the recording, can I ask you, how have you dealt with that? The people who, and one of the articles you even wrote about how these people, some of them wanted to see you put in a camp or some of them would have celebrated your death. That's how some of them were acting. Like they truly thought, well, if you won't get the mask or if you won't get the injection, they almost seemed to want to harm. They wanted to see bad things happen to those of us who didn't go along with the system. So my question for you, Charles, and it's really the main question I want to ask you in this interview is, how do you as someone who saw what happened, who remembers what happened, who was ostracized from different groups or by different people, you were even told by somebody that, that you were killing your kids or their kids or something like this. I mean, some of the accusations that were leveled at people were, were very dramatic, to put it uh, in those terms. I mean, it was full on what was happening. So my question for you is, how do you move on from that? Because I don't really have the answers to this one. Part of me says, forget about it. It probably won't happen again for at least 20 years. Yes, you know, the masses can be told by the TV to hate you, but it's over now. Just move on with your life. That's part of what's in my mind. There's another part of my mind that's like, yeah, but you saw what happened. How can you just go out and socialize with people normally and pretend like nothing happened when you know what happened? Like, that's how I talk to myself. So this is something I haven't been able to fully reconcile or deal with. So I wanted to ask you your opinion on this. Knowing what you know, how do you move on from all of that? How do you banish the ghosts? Yeah, well, you know, the the like I said, the the Thanksgiving followed right after follows right after Halloween in, in the United States, and Thanksgiving is all about giving thanks for the things that we have, the people that are that are in our lives, that choose to be in our lives, and uh, you know, there was because I struggle with this quite a quite a bit, right? Is um is especially being ostracized from because there was a significant chunk of my life that was dedicated to playing the cello and playing the cello in, in the groups. And then suddenly I'm on the outside of that. Uh, I struggle with this a lot. And I actually came across a, as absolutely fascinating article. It was on a stoicism and uh, forgiveness, right? And the, the article's premise was that there is no concept of forgiveness in stoicism. And uh, that, of course, hooked me, and I, I read the rest of of the article. And the the interesting thing is, you, you know, forgiveness from a Christian perspective can only be given if people want to be forgiven, right? They have to offer some sort of apology, uh, and you have to take it, and and then and then that doesn't absolve it doesn't it doesn't make the sin go away, right? The the transgression go away. It just makes it not mean anything any longer. But from the stoic perspective, and the whole point of this article that I was referring to was that there is no concept of forgiveness. And actually the appropriate response, especially to the people who don't don't seek forgiveness and don't offer any apologies, is that the, the correct response to that is actually pity, which is we have to understand that we have a higher perspective, a wider perspective than the person who acted in, in that fashion and, and transgressed, that they that their transgression happened in a, is, is a form of ignorance almost. And because we are more aware, we should try to educate them. But that until they can become aware of it themselves, uh, the correct response is, is is pity to the fact that they don't they don't have a wide enough perspective, and uh, so that's it's an interesting take. I think it's difficult to view things in that perspective, especially you know if people did transgress against you, like if they were mean and nasty to you, uh, it's difficult to view it that way. But I do think ultimately that is probably the best approach to it, and I thought it was a fascinating article as well too. Well, that's a good point to leave it on for this first part of the call. I know that time is short, so we won't get much time in the, the next part. But just for this public part of the call, let's finish on that. You did have this teacher who you met in this synchronistic fashion. You went to rent a cello because you were inspired by something you saw on YouTube. The day that you got your cello, there was a woman there who turned out to be a good teacher 
And she became your teacher that day. You had never heard of her before, but that day she became your teacher. She was a good teacher. You had a good relationship that all went pear-shaped because of the madness, but you were able to patch that up. So let's leave the listeners for the public part on that note. I'll put links in the show notes below for those of you who want to go and check it out. This guy, Charles, he writes articles on Substack and some of them get republished on the Brownstone Institute. They're only short articles. They're to the point. He doesn't mess around wasting people's time, but he writes in such a way that I think is very easy to follow and to digest and to relate to. And it's good stuff. So I recommend it. Go and check out those links in the show notes below and go and check out this guy's articles. And if you want to hear me and him chatting just for a bit more in the second part of the call, it's available at bombastations.com. But for this part of the call, I'll give Charles the final thoughts. Let's finish on this. You were able to patch things up with your cello teacher, which I'm very happy to hear about that. Can you tell us about that experience, sort of reaching out or, or her reaching out to you or all of the troubles that you had in 2020, you managed to put them behind you, which I think is really cool. Can you leave us on this part of the call with, with this story? How did that all come about? Uh, yeah, so it was it was driven, I think, uh, mutually. We both wanted that to happen. And uh, one of the one of our mutual friends arranged for it, too. And the fact of the matter is, it's just a lot of fun to play the cello uh, and to play music in general. And she was an absolutely fantastic teacher on every level that you could imagine a teacher could be. Uh, as far as putting together opportunities for her students, putting together uh, recitals, uh, arranging music, uh, teaching teaching the music, and and you know I've gone from somebody who didn't understand music whatsoever to I can publish arrangements that I've made and I put them on the Substack, and uh, that relationship in and of itself is is valuable. And, uh, you know, that's how you, 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 you find the common ground uh, that you both have and you try and make value from that. And so despite all the problems and uh, maybe a sense of abandonment or whatever it is that you feel when the teacher, so when, when the student was ready, you, the teacher appeared, and then the teacher got caught up in the madness of the, the 2020, and you probably felt a sense of, maybe not betrayal or abandonment, but you know what I'm trying to say? They must have been very difficult for you at the time. You were able to move beyond that and think, well, what happened happened. We've got now and tomorrow. You were able to put all of that behind you, as was she, and you were able to uh, rekindle the, the teacher-student relationship. Yep. I'm glad to hear that. Like I said to you, I'm still struggling with this all these years later. How do I feel about, about people and what was said and what was done? And hopefully the listeners can let us know in the conversation below how they feel about it. So you and I don't have much more time left, but we'll uh, record just a little bit more for the people at Bombversations. So just bear with me. You've been listening to Bombversations. We appreciate and thank all of the supporters who make this possible. Now have yourself a lovely day. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. Fool me, we can't get fooled again. How dare you!